Awesome, and we're uh, super excited to have uh, Tamara back sharing with us. She was here uh, in December, and uh, God really powerfully used her and uh, spoke to me and, and definitely encouraged uh, my wife and I in our marriage, and I know many marriages here, and she's going to come back and share with us. We've been doing a series called Overwhelmed, and she's going to take one of our messages. So, Tamara. Maybe you're celebrating Christmas today or tomorrow, so Merry Christmas to you. As Jesse said, we've been doing a series on overwhelmed, and this is the fourth week in the series. And today, I want to talk about and start us off on the concept of overcoming. Let me start with a question for us. Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel stressed, worried, anxious, depressed? hopeless, oppressed by lies, perhaps? Or do you know that you are vulnerable to being overwhelmed? Or are you feeling like an overcomer, victorious, more than a conqueror in Christ who loves you? Or maybe you are somewhere in between on the journey from this camp to that. But the truth is, is that even if you feel overwhelmed, that in Christ, we are all overcomers. Amen. Whether you feel it, or believe it, or see it, he's got you on a journey. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. And he will not rest until you are victorious in him. Amen. And I just want to thank Gary for stepping out and sharing his message this morning. It is so consistent with what I feel God has placed on my heart to share for the last six weeks or so have I been, as I've been preparing. So I just, I just pray, God, that you would just help me to deliver your word as you would want it. That you would just bless your church and bring glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. You see, we serve a God who has both overcome the world and who completely empathize with our most overwhelming experiences. Jesus said in John 16, 33, that in the world you will have trouble, but take courage because I have overcome the world. Paul says in Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. But Jesus, our Savior, who was fully God, was also fully man and can completely empathize with your most overwhelmed states. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to him being arrested and led away to be crucified. He's praying to the Father in the garden, agonizing and in distress over the events that are about to take place, to the point even where it says that he was sweating drops of blood from his brow. As he was praying to the Father and pouring out his heart and what he was going through to him, he said, we see in John 26, 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
I've gotten to know a few of you here, heard a few of your stories, I know that you too have been in places in your life where your soul has been overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. But today, I want to talk about going from a place of being totally overwhelmed and abandoning the lies and the worries, the things that have mastery over us, keeping us there, and working towards being an overcomer in Him. I'm hoping to present some steps and some perspectives that might support you and encourage you on the journey that I know God has each of you on towards that end. You see, if, if you've noticed, rarely does God just beam us up from this place of being overwhelmed right into the plan and the purpose and the ministry and the promised land that he has for us. Why? Because when he brings us there, not if, but when, he wants us to be fully equipped, <coughs> fully prepared, strong, and a warrior, not a worrier, a victor, not a victim, an overcomer, not overwhelmed. Yes. Amen. Amen. And so, to do that, he brings us into a training ground. He brings us from this place of being overwhelmed, and he asks us to follow him into the wilderness, into a place where there's nothing but him and us and our needs, a place where we get to work out our muscles of trust, work out our muscles of faith, and build up our relationship, our intimate relationship and reliance on the Father who loves us and who's there to provide for every need. I love this quote. Often when my husband and I are sitting on the couch knowing we want to go for a workout, having trouble getting off our sit bones, we'll say this to ourselves, wow, he says, wow, I really regret that workout, said no one ever. <laughs> wow, I really regret that workout, said no one ever. You know, training can be hard work, it can be uncomfortable, it can be a little bit painful, but rarely do we ever regret the results of the training that we go through. We never regret being stronger. God wants to build in us a resilience. He doesn't want us to be victims of, of this overwhelming world we live in. He wants us to be resilient in Him. I love this quote too, it's a Chinese proverb that says, Better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Isn't that awesome? And boy, do I know what it feels like to be a gardener in a war. I have been in this camp for many years in my life. But God wants to raise us up, train us, bring us through some training so that we feel like warriors in a garden. He's got you on that journey. So here it is in the wilderness then, in this in-between space where we find our training ground. And perhaps that's why James says this in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. To consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I don't really like the idea of having to go through trials to build my perseverance, but I sure like the idea of not lacking anything and being mature and complete. So bring it on, because I trust him that he will complete the work. Amen. This quote I read from a book called The Dream Giver many years ago. 
And God showed it to me again as I was preparing for this sermon. He says, everything you now lack for the upcoming fulfillment of your dream is being offered to you in the wasteland. God's promise is that you will lack nothing when you emerge from the other side. And so, to help me illustrate this idea, I'm going to just talk about three different stories. First, the people of Israel going from slavery into the promised land. Second, and Gary, this is where your word really struck me. I'm going to talk just briefly about Jesus. After his baptism, after the Holy Spirit came and ascended upon him, entered into the wilderness before he started his ministry. And then finally we'll look at Peter stepping out of the boat and walking on the water with Jesus. Following that, I'm going to deliver seven of my top tips on how to be encouraged and as successful as possible as you journey through this wilderness with God. Yeah. All right, let's go. So, the Israelite people, between about 1850 BC and 1450 BC, were enslaved under the rule of Egypt, under Pharaoh. For 400 years, the Israelite people grew to about 2 million people strong for 12 to 16 generations. They labored and they worked to build up the nation of Egypt on their backs with no hope of having their own nation, with nothing of their own to show for it. It was a rather hopeless but predictable and familiar situation. God decided it was time to bring them home. God decided it was time to take his people into the promised land. And so knowing how familiar, predictable, and even comfortable in some ways, their 400 years of slavery was, he starts to turn up the heat a little. The new pharaoh that came into power saw the two million person labor force that he had as quite a threat to him. And so he started to oppress them, make things more difficult for them, cause them to have to work more. And they started to really cry out and get pretty uncomfortable. And praise God for that, because sometimes, even if it's one of the place you're in that is oppressive and, and a place that you would almost consider slaved, if you're really used to it and it's really familiar, can be sometimes hard to move out of. And so God, he comes in with power and with might. He sends Moses to be a vessel to deliver the message to Pharaoh to let his people go, but we know that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He could have softened his heart right there and caused Pharaoh to say, sure let my people go, but he does and he hardens it because I think God wanted to show his people and the Egyptians who Yahweh was, who the Lord of hosts was. What a great verse that was read, 46.10, the God of Jacob. He showed up in town and he wanted to make it clear that his people had a new master, that their father had come to get them. And so 10 plagues he bestows onto the land of Egypt. He causes the Nile River to turn into blood. He sends, he, he covers the land with gnats and flies and frogs and locusts that destroy everything. People are covered in boils. He causes all the livestock of the Egyptians, not the Israelites, to die. Three days of darkness fall on the Egyptians, but not the Israelite people. 
Hailstorms come down and destroy anyone and everything that do not heed the warning to go and take refuge. He then sets off a plague, and the firstborn of the Egyptian children die and their cattle. Finally, Pharaoh says, okay, let my you, will, you can go. I will let your people go. But then God says something else to him. I think this is so cool. 400 years of slavery and nothing to show for it. Two million people need to exit out of Egypt on their way to the promised land through the desert, but they have nothing. So what does God do? He puts favor in the hearts of the Egyptian people. He says, I will make them favorably disposed towards you. And then he tells his people, go and ask your Egyptian neighbors, the Egyptians in your household, to give you gold, to give you silver, and to give you clothes on your back. And so it says, they plundered the Egyptians as a result. I like to think of it as payment for 400 years of slavery. And so there they are, exiting out of Egypt, 10 plagues, a total plunder, filled with all they could possibly need for the journey. And immediately as they step out into the wilderness, God covers them with a cloud to shade them from the scorching heat by day and surrounds them with a fire to keep them warm by night. As they walk, they end up at the northern end of the Red Sea and they need to cross. And at that point, Pharaoh had sent his army to pursue them, to take them back because he changed his mind and didn't want to let go of his slave labor force. So there they are, stuck between a rock and a hard place. And God then opens up the Red Sea, allowing them to cross over on dry land. And then, as Pharaoh's army pursues, he closes it up on them. At this point, they are absolutely rejoicing in the amazing miracles and the signs and the wonders and the power of their God. Ten plagues, plunder, cloud by day, fire by night, opening the Red Sea, closing the Red Sea. And so they're just rejoicing, and they carry on into the wilderness for a couple of days, and then they get thirsty. Fair enough, they are in the desert after all. And what do they do? Do they say, well, we're thirsty. Of course God is going to provide. Look at what he did. Ten plagues, plunder, cloud by day, fire by night, opening and closing the Red Sea. I wonder what God's going to do now. Remember all those miracles? He is with us. I wonder how he's going to provide water for us in this time of thirst. But they don't. They have the minds of slaves, not the minds of children of God, and they doubt, and they worry. And in fact, they accuse Moses of bringing them out there just to die, like it's some kind of evil trick. And it's kind of easy to judge, but I've so been there. I've so easily forgotten the things that God has done in my life when I'm faced with a need. And instead of just going, God, I wonder what you're going to do. Praise you for this opportunity to see your glory yet again. I doubt, and I worry, and I freak out. And so as we know, God brings him to a body of water that is too bitter to drink. And he uses, tells Moses to put his staff in it, and it turns sweet so they can drink. And then we see this cycle happen over and over and over again. They become hungry. And what do they do? Remember the wonders, the signs, the power? No. They worry. They doubt. They fear. They accuse Moses of bringing them out of there just to die. 
in their wilderness. But of course, God then brings manna from heaven and wheat, quail for them to eat. Enough for every day for two million people to gather every single day. And a double portion on the sixth day. Because it's there that he introduces the Sabbath. A final thing that I'll mention in regards to this cycle that we see. You see, God was bringing them out of Egypt into the wilderness to bring them to the promised land. The distance between where they exited out of Egypt and where they need to get to the promised land was only about 386 kilometers. It's about the distance between Junction Church and Manning Park. And it would take 2 million people to walk that. Well, according to Google, it would take about 70 hours to walk it. But let's give them a little bit extra time. 2 million people, that's a lot of distance. They probably could have done it within 40 days. But it took them 40 years. Why is that? So only about a year and a half after they crossed the Red Sea, God already took them to check out the land of Canaan. He had Moses send 12 spies, they call it, 12 people to go and do some reconnaissance. Go check out this amazing promised land that you say is flowing with milk and honey. Go check out what the agricultural situation is. Go check out what all the resources are. Bring back bushels of grapes and, and things that we could see that God has promised us. But the 12 spies that go there for 40 days, they check out the place, and you know what they focused on? All they could focus on? Not the abundance that was there. Not the promises that were there. But the giants and the fortification. You see, this was the place where there were people that were obviously of greater stature than they were. People they referred to as giants. And it was a very well-fortified place with many fortified cities. And that's all they could focus on, were the barriers, the challenges, the scary things that were between them and entering the purpose and the promise that God had for them. As a result, they came back and reported their fears, and they spread a plague of fear and doubt. And so obviously, they weren't quite ready. So we see that God then says, okay, for every single one of those days that you surrounded that camp and you doubted, you will spend a year in the desert. And that is how it came about that they spent 40 years wandering the desert. If you read it in the book of Numbers, it comes across like it's a punishment. But we don't serve a punitive God. We serve a God of purpose. He sees that they weren't quite ready, and so he continues with the training ground. And he uses that time not to abandon them, not to say, see you in 40 years. Oh, he uses that time to build up their trust and their relationship in him. He uses it to re-family them from being children of slaves to being children of the Most High God. Amen. Amen. I use that word re-family. i got to give Eden some credit for that. She said it when we were out in a Bible study one night. She's like it's, like, it's like we all come from certain families and backgrounds, but nothing compares to the parenthood of God. We all are in the process of sort of being re-family, what it means to be his child to have him as our parent. And I don't care how great your parents were, nothing compares to God. So we all are in the process of learning. So he uses this time in the wilderness, 40 years. He creates a culture out of them, a society, a people group. He hands down his civil laws, ceremonial laws, judiciary laws, rules and guidelines of how to interact with each other. He creates his children and the old generation of slaves, anyone who was over the age of 20, 
did not make it into the promised land. They, they, they died off. So he rose up new creations in them. He also, the tabernacle was built at this time, and they organized themselves as 12 tribes around the tabernacle. And we see that that's carried forward into the land of Canaan, into Israel. And so, the truth is, is that we all have a different timeline, and God knows where we're at and what it is that we need. And we have choice in the matter, don't we? We have, we have a part to play in this. And God will use it all for good. Every one of our doubts and worries and mistrust, he's got us on the journey. He'll get you to the promised land. But with every opportunity and need that comes our way is an opportunity to move closer to that by trusting in him, remembering his faithfulness, and considering what he might do. Jesus is kind of like our gold standard in this, isn't he? Jesus as we see, provides us an example, sort of like an analogy of that whole journey as we see him enter into the wilderness after he is baptized, before his ministry starts. And you know, we see very early on in his life, as early as when he was 12 years old, that he knew who his father was. We see when he was 12 years old, he's in the temple in Jerusalem, teaching and spending time with the teachers and his parents, um, we're looking for him for three days, and as they find him, he goes, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Jesus knew from the beginning who his father was, and that influenced how he stepped out in the wilderness and towards his promise and his purpose. We see that he had a simple process of trusting and knowing the father and then taking a step of faith. Trusting and knowing the father and then saying yes and following him as he is led. And you know what? You might have a hard time trusting. You may not know the Father that well yet. I know I have a hard time trusting. I'm still getting to know him. And so sometimes, what I recommend, just start taking it, start by taking a step of faith and see his faithfulness. And that will help your trust and your faith to grow. And so we see Jesus after he was baptized by John the Baptist, came up immediately from the water, and the heavens were opened, and we saw the Spirit of God in the form of a dove settling on him. And a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus knew who his Father was. And in that trust and in that inseparable intimacy, he then follows the Holy Spirit, who leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil who leads him into the wilderness for some training before his ministry begins. After he had fasted for 40 days, he then became hungry. Only after 40 days. Give me four hours. And it was then when he was hungry and exposed and maybe starving for social interaction that's when the tempter came. God is going to give him a good workout. But I also, I have to mention that I think that even though this is a place, the wilderness, the desert, that's an empty place, a place of desolation, a wasteland, because of the fact that there's no distractions, no other provisions, nothing except you and this desert place, I think I have a feeling it may have also been a time 
where Jesus felt that much more connected with the Father. Has anyone here ever fasted for spiritual reasons? Fasted to spend extra time with the Lord? Yeah, me too. And wow, if you've ever experienced the presence of God when you refuse to let any other distractions between you and him, it's a blessed thing. It's an awesome thing. In that moment, you are filled. You are not hungry. You have everything. And so I have a feeling that maybe that Jesus could have been at this place at this point, despite his many physical um, discomforts. And so the tempter came. And he tempts Jesus three times, essentially to doubt the Father, to disobey the Father, and then take on another master, worship him instead of the Father for expediency's sake. And how does Jesus respond? He just stays calm, raises his sword. Jesus responds, reflecting the fact that he knew the word of God inside and out. And this is where our power comes. You want to get to know the Father, you want to be strong, you want to work towards that place of resilience where you're worrying him, get into the word. It is alive, and it will strengthen you, and it will equip you. Get into it, memorize it, consume it every day. And so how does Jesus respond to, this, to his temptations? How does he get through this training ground? He says to the first temptation, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In response to the second temptation, he says, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And to the, to the third temptation, he says, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The word of God was there, just equipping him and empowering him in what was otherwise a very fragile state, 40 days in the wilderness fasting. And just a little interesting piece of trivia. You see, Jesus knew the scriptures inside and out. He could have responded appropriately to the temptations with many different um, words from God. But he ended up choosing ones that happened to be the commandments that God, of many commandments, but three of many commandments that God gave to Israel when they were in the wilderness, just before they were entering the promised land as reminders to them. And so afterwards, pretty simple process, by the way, hey? Trust the Father, Holy Spirit leads me to the wilderness. I'm there, it's tough, I'm connecting with God, but I know the word, and I just keep trusting, and I just keep obeying, and I just keep worshiping the one. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. I like this because it's a reminder that nothing is forever. He's not going to leave you here forever. Your training time is not forever. He values and will give us rest. He values and has rest for you. He won't give you more than what you can handle. He's going to keep working you out until he knows it's time to give you a rest. And if you're someone today who, who is in that camp where they're in that place where I am an overcomer, you're feeling victorious in Christ, you're feeling like you have conquered, 
then maybe you're that angel to someone who's just stepping out of the wilderness or who's in the middle of it or is still feeling quite overwhelmed. If you feel like you're feeling strong, then consider perhaps that maybe you're someone's angel. A smile, a conversation, a listening ear, an invitation out for coffee, a hug. I like this quote by Mother Teresa. It says, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. I think that does great things. So again, just a reminder that, that God may have you in the middle of an incredible challenge, a wilderness place where you feel exposed and scared, but there is a time of rest. And this is leading you to that promised land. This is leading you to a ministry, to the next plan and the next purpose that he has for you for 2019. So maybe you're somewhere in between. In between that enslaved mindset of the Israelites and that gold standard that Jesus shows us. Take a quick look here at, at Peter walking on water with Jesus. I'm looking at just uh, the scripture from Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. So we've got Jesus and his disciples in the boat. And the safety, the familiarity, and the predictability of the boat. And there's a great storm around them. And they see Jesus off in the distance on the water, calling him to come walk on the water with him. At this point, Peter knows and trusts Jesus enough to say, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll step out of that boat. I want to walk on water with you. I don't want to just stay here where it's safe and predictable. I, I want to live that adventure with you that I know you have for me. So, okay, yeah, I'm going to step out of the boat. And he does. And he experiences walking on water with Jesus. But then he takes his eyes off Jesus for a moment. And he starts to put his focus on the waves and the wind and the storm around him, and he starts to sink. But Jesus didn't call him out there just to die. He didn't call him out there to drown. Jesus picks him up, puts it back in the boat. We'll give her another try another day. Good job. And so where are you at in this process? Are you in bondage, perhaps still quite content in the predictability of it all? Or are you there enslaved and the plagues and the pressures are starting to kind of build up and you know you want to move, you know God is calling you to something that's starting to get real uncomfortable there. Maybe you're about to take your first step into the unknown. Maybe you're a few steps into it and you've now, you're, you're in front of your first need, your first unknown, your first challenge, and you have a choice. You can doubt God and you can worry. And you can let the lies convince you that he just brought you up there to die, and then maybe it would have been a heck of a lot better if he just stayed in Egypt as a slave. Or you can trust the Father who loves you and has such good plans for you. Maybe you're well into your wilderness. You've really built up those trust and those faith muscles. You're feeling pumped. And uh, maybe, maybe you feel like you could use a little rest. Well, it's coming. Just stay close to him. It's coming. Presenting your requests to him. Keep trusting him. Maybe you've entered that promised land. You're starting that ministry, that next purpose God has in your life. You're starting to walk out that vision he kind of gave you back there where, where you're just starting the wilderness journey. Maybe you've been living in the promised land for some time. Well, here 
are a few tips for the journey towards overcoming that hopefully will encourage you along the way. And let me just say again, it's God who will do it. He is faithful. You can screw up. You cannot trust. You can worry. I do it all the time. But he is so patient and so faithful. Just get back on the horse. Get back into your father's arms and keep going. So I don't, I don't say these because I'm an expert in any of them. In fact, if I'm an expert in anything, it's being overwhelmed. I have lots of experience in that. But as God has brought me on a few journeys, and as I look into scripture, seek truth, I find that these are some of the things that might help. And a lot of them are really consistent with what I've been studying in psychology too, which is kind of cool. So I'll just read them real quick and then I'll expand on each of them briefly. Number one, know whose kid you are and who your father is. Number two, get God's promises. Three, remember how God has been faithful in the past. Number four, develop a sense of wonder. Number five, say yes to the Father and his directives. Number six, surrender. And number seven, gratitude. So number one, know whose kid you are and who your father is. See, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out and gives us permission to call out, Daddy, Father. When Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray, he said, Abba, Father, our Father in heaven. And so you are no longer slaves, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And that's an exciting thing when you're also an heir. That's from Galatians 4, 6 to 7. You see, when you're an heir, that means that everything that the Father has is yours. I'm just reading a verse that's from the uh, parable of the prodigal son. This is actually a verse that, that is not said to the son who returns necessarily. It's a verse that's said to the other son who stayed in the household and was actually a little bit bitter that his brother got a party after he returned, after he squandered his inheritance. But he was feeling a little bit left out himself because he wasn't very good at actually living in that inheritance himself though he was still under the roof. Anyway, the father says to him in Luke 15, 31, he says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. Which is why when we're here and we have no idea how God is gonna take us out of this space from being overwhelmed to this promise that we're holding on to. Just know that he's got all the resources in the world. He's gonna do it. You just watch. God wants you to live as his child, enjoying his bounty, not as a slave surviving off the scraps. Where in your life are you limiting yourself to scraps? Where in your heart, in your mind, in your life, where are you not stepping out and instead limiting yourself to scraps? Because God wants you to cash in in your inheritance. He wants you to cash that check and take up your full role in the family dynasty that is the kingdom of God. And so where do you need to start feasting from the table? What might be hindering you from walking in the inheritance that is yours is a shame, feeling unworthy, not good enough. Is it guilt? Are you punishing yourself? So you're not guilty. God doesn't find you guilty. 
That's why Jesus died for us. Amen. We're saved. Completely and 100%. Lord. His yeah. salvation, his death on the cross, is not going to change the fact that you have eternal life in him. I mean, sorry. <laughs> There's nothing you could do to change the fact that you have eternal life in him. No need to feel guilty anymore. Are you doubting the Father's unconditional love and provision? Is it fear? Do you have an intolerance for uncertainty of what lies ahead? That'd be me. That's anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's the monster of anxiety right there. But let me tell you, when, it takes a bit more of an effort to step out of that fear, but when you do, that muscle gets strong real fast. Is it pessimism and hopelessness, doubting God's favor? Is it perfectionism and needing to be in control? Do you care too much about others, what others might think? Is it the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, or the desire for other things? So number two, get God's promises. And what I mean by get God's promises, I mean go get them, dig into the word, and go get them because he has promises for you for your specific situation just for you through his word every morning and big ones to carry you through big seasons. So go get them and then get them. Like get them through here and into here. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Let them nourish you. Because we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So he must have a specific promise for you. And I'll just share a couple of promises that have gotten me through some really difficult times and have given me strength and encouragement to step out of the boat and to just brave the wilderness and to keep on going towards the promised land. And the first one he gave me before I entered into taking my undergraduate degree in psychology. I was terrified of failure. I didn't believe I could do it. But God said this to me. He said, Tamara, I have instructed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, if you want to run, you will not stumble. Amen. That's Proverbs 4, 11 to 12. And you know what? He wasn't kidding. On a 4.0 scale GPA, I got a 4.12. It's like almost straight A pluses. And I know that sounds like a brag. But it's not. No, no, no. I'll tell you why it's not. Sounds like, it's not a brag. Because even though I stepped out, I was still so absolutely terrified of failure that I did absolutely everything I could. I made, I made it my first priority. I pretty much shut everything else in my life to make sure I didn't fail. That's what ended up happening. I'm now taking my master's degree. And you know what? I'm not getting straight A pluses. And that is a brag. Because I have enough trust to say, hey, I have time to study and to do my work, but I also have time to spend with friends and to exercise and to spend lots of time with God. I'm getting good grades, don't worry, okay? <laughs> I, I, the competence will be there, but the fear, the fear is much less. And then the other promise that he gave me was about four years ago before we came here. He was showing Jeremy and I a path that just seemed really blessed. He showed, he was showing us a path that I thought was kind of leading in a way towards this promised land, but I have a hard time trusting, you see. I have a hard time trusting that it, maybe it was just a little bit too good to be true. And so I was hesitant to step out into his goodness and take up the inheritance that was mine. And so he said this. 
He said, now. To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all, far more abundantly beyond all, we can think or ask according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 All. I'm still chewing on that. Okay. Number three. Oh, and by the way, God has a promise for you too. So start just scouring the scriptures until you get that promise that you need to strengthen you through this season, whatever that may be. Don't stop until it gives you one. Don't stop until the Holy Spirit shows you one that just gets right into where you need it. Until it's just separating, separating bone from marrow. You know, just absolutely where you need it. He wants to give that to you. So number three, remember how God has been faithful in the past. Deuteronomy 7, 18 and 19 says, You shall not be afraid. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders, and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. You shall not be afraid. You shall well remember. And so as you enter into 2019, take a moment to recall where God has brought you from. Take a moment to recall all that God has done. Write it down. Have it readily available. Quickly to remind you, to remind you that, oh yeah, of course, he is faithful. Before you enter into 2019, be sure to gather up everything he's done. Praise him for it and bring it with you into the future. Number four, and I love this one. This changed my mind. This changed my life. Develop a sense of wonder. See, our God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. We know from even Einstein himself, who was a man about the knowledge, who gave us so much knowledge in this world, said that imagination is more important than knowledge. Jesse encourages us as we worship to use the creative minds that God has given us. And when we know our Father, I think he wants to invite us to start to wonder of all the things he might be able to do and stop limiting ourselves based on only what we know and consider all that he could possibly do and all that he is. If the Israelites remembered God's previous miracles, remembered, and had a sense of wonder in the desert when a need presented itself, how would have their responses change to their thirst, to their hunger, to assessing the promised land. They could have said, I wonder how God is going to quench our thirst. I wonder who this how this God who's clearly powerful, who clearly loves us, who clearly has a plan, is going to provide for us in our time of hunger. I wonder, I wonder how he's going to get us into that promised land, because there's some big barriers and there's some giants there, but his promises are there, and his promises are true. So I wonder how he's going to do it. And leave it to him. How would a state of wonder diverge your path, change your level of optimism, strengthen your state of mind, and liberate you? Try right now, we'll just try a little exercise here, to think of something that is overwhelming you, or a need that you have. 
something that is overwhelming you, or a need that you have. And try to complete this sentence with me. I wonder how God is going to. We're talking about the God of wonders here. I wonder how God could possibly provide for me here, move this mountain, oh, bring life where there was death, bring peace where there's chaos. Let your mind wander in the truths that we know about our God. And now think of something that God is calling you to, that you have been putting off doing. Something that God is calling you to, something that you've been hesitant or afraid to do, and something you've been putting off doing, and try to complete this sentence. I wonder what would happen if I. I wonder what would happen if I stepped out of the boat. I wonder what would happen if I actually just enrolled in that program that God's been calling me to. I wonder what would happen if I just had that conversation with that person. I wonder what would happen if I canceled Netflix for three months. I wonder what would happen if I just put my phone away for a couple hours every night when I was spending time with my family. I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen if I put out that invitation for people to come over and hang out, or if I said yes to an invitation. I wonder what would happen if I just got that punch pass and hit the gym, even just on Monday. Number five, almost there. Say yes to the Father and his directives. Jesus is our example. He shows us how we can run relatively smoothly. And he says in John 14, 31, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And as I was looking through the scriptures around this, I found this connection. You see, we're saved. We have eternal life in him because of what Jesus did on the cross. And there's nothing we could do that will ever change that. But I realized that that, that promise, that's just the beginning of a great life spent close to God and knowing more of him. And God showed me this huge connection between obeying his commands, saying yes to his directives, following him, and getting closer and closer and closer to him. And I see why. It was revealed in John 14, in uh, verses 21-23, we see that when we obey the Father, which to love him means to obey him, it resulted in him revealing more of himself to us. Jesus says that he and the Father will disclose themselves to us and have their abode in us as we hear the word and follow it. So it's, it's a passageway into being able to get to know him more as we say yes to him, as we say yes to his directives and his ways for our lives. Number six, surrender. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, there was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father, feeling overwhelmed in anticipation of what was about to unfold. So overwhelmed with sorrow and grief 
But he said, and, and you know, and sometimes we're at that point where we can't even step out of the boat. We're just, we're kind of just riddled with where we're at. Things are just so overwhelming. But there's still something, there's still a part that we can play at the very least. And Jesus shows us we can just surrender. Jesus says as he was praying to the Father, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. I love that honesty. Our Savior who is fully man, saying, God, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. I have seen God move mountains and do miracles in people's lives who are down in the dumps. Not because of anything they did other than just finally open their heart and say, okay, not my will, God, your will. And he started to move mountains. In situations that I never, that just wasn't humanly possible. So sometimes, if it's all you can do, a very powerful thing you could do is just surrender. And number seven, I'm going to leave, leave off on this note. And it really excites me because gratitude is something that can change your mind and your well-being, even if your circumstances don't change. Amen. It can increase, right? I could tell there's a lot of you who've been, who've been practicing and adopting the attitude of gratitude in your daily life. Even if your circumstances don't change, you could start to increase and enhance your well-being, your contentment, your joy. Gratitude is a really popular subject of study in psychology these days too, particularly positive psychology. We give people exercises to say, okay, every night get a journal and write down three things that you're thankful for. Because we know it brings about a form of contentment. It gets your mind focused on the right things. It also brings you into the present moment. It produces a sense of mindfulness, which actually at a physiological level in the brain takes you from operating on an emotional level to engaging faculties in the brain that help you to operate on a more rational and logical level. It's incredible what mindfulness can do. And so, so entering into gratitude is a practice of that. 